When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. All right, hello everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I've got a very special episode for you for the actually two episodes for the next two weeks. At least that's that's the plan going into this. I've had a lot of really meaningful and insightful discussions with with several people on the fan page that don't typically agree with me, and it's made for some really great discussions online. And during one of those discussions, the gentleman who's going to be joining me today suggested, hey, why don't I come on the show and we can actually have this discussion so the audience can hear it. I thought that was a great idea. So I'm going to be joined today by someone, if you've been on the Facebook fan page, you've seen him, his name is Chris Dolan. Uh, he's going to be joining me today, and, and we're going to be looking at the case and discussing it and, and seeing how our two kind of angles of looking at it compare to one another. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Jessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. All right, Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, before we, we start digging into the case, uh, I'd like to learn. I actually don't know a whole lot about you. Uh, you mentioned that you had kind of a background in radio broadcasting, but can you kind of t- tell my, the audience and me who you are, what you do, and, and maybe how you got interested in the case and the podcast? Yeah, of course. So my name is Chris Dolan, like you said. I currently live down in Nashville, Tennessee. From about 2007 till 2015, maybe 2016, I actually worked in the radio industry, working for ESPN and Fox News as a producer behind the scenes. So I, I did have like a, a a lot of the stuff that you always talk about for behind the scenes stuff. I always relate to really well. Right. And then uh, and then after that, uh, I actually did a complete 180 in in, career, in my career, and now I actually brew beer for a living. Oh, that's awesome. 
So you work at a brewery? Have you made your own brewery? Explain. I'm into the craft beer, so now you have my attention. <laughs> so I have. So I haven't opened my own brewery, but I moved down. I was dealing since 2015. I used to live up in New York on Long Island. Worked for a couple breweries up there, and uh, just this past year, I moved down to Nashville to work for Tailgate Brewery. Oh, very cool. Is this the first season you've listened to Truth and Justice, or have you been around for a while? I've been around since the beginning. Uh, I kind of always want, I wanted to get into podcasting. When I got graduated from college back in 2007, I actually talked to a couple of my buddies. I actually bought some equipment and wanted to actually do podcasting, and I've always kicked myself in the butt for it, because that's back in 2007 when there was really nobody doing podcasting. Yeah, you would have been one of six back then, I think. <laughs> But I I listened to Serial, and then I started looking for other podcasts that were kind of picking up from where that left off, and that brought me to Serial Dynasty, and I've been here since the very beginning. I was never really active on the Facebook page until this year, but I think this year just drew me in on a different level than years past had. What is it about this case that got you so Because I mean, you interact quite a bit now. I mean, I didn't even realize you were around for that long because you hadn't interacted much. So what, what is it about this case that really drew you in? I think that the lack of evidence, usually like it's a lack of evidence because usually I get away with just being able to listen to the podcast and I can basically get a whole entire picture of everything that's happening just as you're explaining the evidence that, that comes up. Mm-hmm. And I can really paint myself a really good picture. And throughout the year, I occasionally went on to the, to the fan page and I would go on to look at some case docs when I really had uh, a question. But this year with the lack of evidence, you really had to dive in to a lot of detail that are just in witness statements. And I think because of that, I couldn't get the full detail. And sometimes it was hard to just keep up with so many different statements and changing statements that I actually said, holy hell, I actually have to like, look at all these things all the time just to follow along, but it, it drew me in deeper to the point where I was like, all right, I'm going to use the, use the Facebook group to also talk about some of this stuff. So it really is just a different level this season. You know, for me too, it's, it's, a, it, it's a confusing case because you know, there's, there's a couple ways to look at it, and I think that's something that we should discuss. That, that tends to be a lot of our discussion back and forth on the fan page is kind of the different ways that we look at certain things. Like you see, yeah, there, there's a lack of evidence or... Sometimes I feel like there's there's too much in it because I, I get overwhelmed with this case too because there's just whether it's these witness statements or whatever there's like all these statements but nothing's lining up and it's just I'm constantly trying to pick through them and see what lines up where are the anchors who's lying who's telling the truth when are they lying and it and nobody's like lying all the time or telling the truth all the time so you're like trying to you know weave through all of that. What are your feelings on the case? Are you, are you do you lean towards Jennifer innocent, lean towards her guilty, or somewhere in between? I've gone back and forth throughout the season, and I guess the biggest thing that always made me go back and forth is the fact that timing was always the issue because I felt like the picture has always been here, and the puzzle pieces just haven't fit because we haven't been able to pin down the time, and because of that, I've gone back and forth a little bit. Because as I find out new information, I'm just like, okay, that really means Jennifer couldn't have been involved because of this timing. Or it goes back the other way where I'm like, okay, maybe she actually can. But in the course of probably the last like four weeks, like I've really gone more towards, I think she's involved, 
And she's probably involved to the level that she actually got convicted for. I, I don't think, she, I don't think she was the person that killed Catalina by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I really am starting to, to get to the point where I'm like, I really think she's involved in a way of being a distraction, being a lookout, but nothing beyond that. What is it out of the last four weeks that caused you kind of to shift your thinking towards that direction? So let me, like, I, my biggest hang up on it has always been I had to go with some, not having a lot of hard evidence that I can go on and not being able to really pin something down. When we were going with that 915 timeline, I was really having a tough time her to be truly involved just from the way that I've looked at the case. The way I look at it, I've been using a lot of everybody's statements because I actually, those are usually the closest thing to what somebody truly remembers and there's really not as much chance for people to get their opinions swayed as we've seen, like as statements have gone further and further and evolved over mm-hmm. time. And when I'm using those, I had a tough time with Jennifer saying that she left the apartment at, uh, we'll call it 8.55, but everything happened at 9.15. But that was the one anchor point that we had because with not having the evidence, that was the one time where I'm just like, that's a, a, that's a one document that actually says it and it should be from a trusted source. Right. But then as we really started diving and questioning, I really started to think that Jennifer's timeline was wrong. We just didn't have a way of confirming it. And I started to suspect that it was just because she left the apartment sooner. Mm-hmm. But then this week completely changed the way that I looked at the case. Because as you said, it, uh, the, with the title being Open a Can of Worms, for me, I actually think that after this episode, I'm actually seeing the forest through the trees. And it uh, connects some of those dots for you. As soon as the 935 call, being the first 911 call, I feel like everything is starting to finally match up. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, and I, I want to I I credit you. It's one of the reasons why I have you on now is it was my, a conversation I was having with you on the fan page. We were going back and forth for hours about this that really, really had me questioning the time because you know I was like you it's that's the one time we have it says pronounced at 915 it has to be 915 and it's and it's interesting because we kind of went different directions with it because you were talking about that's just not even yeah that's not enough time for Jennifer to do it but that's not enough time for Jennifer to have made her phone calls even you're you're 100% right I I was very firm on like I think everything Jennifer said she did that morning was correct so if she did leave and she walked to go use the phone and then played phone tag and then also called the, the, the uh, phone company. I was just like, that's just not enough time to get her back to the scene where she puts herself at 915. I just couldn't see it at all. Yeah. And it, and it was, I didn't have a problem with it. I was like, yeah, it could be, I think I even said in our discussions, like, you know, she says she thought she was there for a half hour or however long it was, but I mean, nobody's keeping track of time. They're just, you know, it could have been two minutes on the first call and five minutes on the second call. Who knows? But then the more and more I started thinking about it, it was, it was, I mean, you were right. It was like, that's, that's just too tight for that to have happened. 
And for me, it was that in a combination of, I want to credit two listener, uh, Danny Cash, who, um, you know, I think Danny, Danny leans guilty, uh, but they, they had posted, um, it was a document I had, but, but Danny had posted a document where Peekert says that he was dispatched at 942. And we had that whole 27 minute gap that we started working with. And then that's when I, you know, that information combined with our discussion got me thinking, man, there's something, something's not right here. But I tended to lean more towards that time of death was wrong uh, rather than, you know, she left earlier. Yeah. And it was a hard thing for me to wrap my head around, too, because I'm like, with something wrong, I'm, I'm trying to piece these causal pieces together, but I can't. I can't figure this part out, but the 935 thing, all of a sudden, I think it really is that missing puzzle piece that puts everything else back in line and building the puzzle is just that much clearer. Right. Because when I start, and, and I've purposely not talked to you about this, so that way we can do this all fresh mm-hmm. this week. As I was looking at it, if 935 is right. It just, I just want to real quick make sure we clarify. The call was at 944. And I theorize that that would that the nine thirty five that I was mentioning was when I, I would say that's if, if Keith Truesdale called nine forty four inside the apartment at nine forty four, then Eva would have left the area to the office at around nine thirty five. Okay, th- thank you for just clarifying that. Mm-hmm. And there'll probably be a couple other things that you'll be able to help me along with here on a couple of things. But if we use nine thirty five for Eva leaving to go to the office. That can tie in really nicely. June Sage in her statement says that she thinks she got that knock around at her door at about 9.30. So if that knock happens at the door at 9.30, a couple minutes later, there's that bang, there's the scream, and what I've always thought was what she heard was the actual attack happening. If that happens, that gives a five-minute window right there for it to happen. But then it starts to pinpoint even going further back when Jen starts to place herself at the door outside of the apartment, having that much time to go use the phone, do everything we just talked about, getting back to that door at about 930 sounds about right when you actually start to try to figure out how long each of those phone calls takes, getting ready takes, the walks take. Mm-hmm. But then I even think that there's even another level to it where it kind of makes Red Rock's timeline of events also work. If he sees Jennifer outside the door at around 930, when we can put tie that in with June Sage's statement, the way he has his timeline happening after he's done talking to Jennifer, he also says that about 20 to 30 minutes that he thought that he was away before he started to hear word that there was a dead body in the complex and they made their way back to the crime scene. And that would probably align with by the time that EMS actually arrived, word starting to get around, the group of people is starting to be there. So that 9.35 time also then leads me to a whole bunch of questions. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is why I lean towards guilt. And now I need these questions to kind of start to be answered. Mm -hmm. Jen puts herself outside of the apartment. And if we use everything above that as actually kind of happening, what is she doing right outside of an apartment roughly five minutes before the murder occurs? Right. And it's always been something that I haven't been able to fully pin pin down. We've had a theory. I've gone back and forth with you a little bit on it. But there's that's the first major question that if she wasn't involved, what was she doing right outside of the door five minutes before the murder comes? Right. The other issue is, again, that we don't have these real solid anchors, right? So June says, I think it was around about 930. So mm-hmm. that could be 935. It could have been 937, 940, 915. You know, so if, it, if we knew for sure that June said the person I saw was there at 930, then, you know, that would be great. But, it, you know, it, it also could have been. If it if she's off by six minutes, then that could have been Jennifer knocking on the door after Eva left. Or if it was off by six minutes, Correct. the other you know, there's just there's just a lot of there's a lot of room to play with there. And I want to dig into June, but I want to get you to get through your questions first, and we'll circle back. Yeah. So then the last thing now, give me a minute here just to walk through the pinpoints for me to get to this last like real major point. So when Jen says she comes back. She encounters Eva at the steps, and that's when Eva says that something's going on in there. They hear the voice, and she says she runs for help. There's a big question that's going to come from that because he backed to KD's statement that he made. Now, there's a lot of things about KD's statement that I look at and I say, some of his actions seem influenced by outside sources. But the one thing that he seems really good at is making observations, and I don't have anything to make me say that his observations of things happening around him or other people really come into question. Mm -hmm. Because one thing that he says when he's with Eva and they go down the steps, which is a big discrepancy from what Jen is saying, he does say that he sees Jen walking up the sidewalk from another direction saying that they need an ambulance. And I had talked, I briefly brought that up a couple weeks ago with you online, but now it's starting to make me be like, something's not right here because the order of events are starting to be wrong because Jen says that she encounters Eva coming down the steps. Then she runs off to get help, but never mentions Katie or youngster. Mm -hmm. Then the red rock interaction happens. And then everything starts to unfold from there and doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. I almost want to know where did she go? Because I don't believe that that's the, the order of events. And I just, and like, this is all just coming from Jennifer's first statement. And it's only using that. And I never wanted to use anything else from Jen 
other than that, because I felt like she was influenced by the cops after that. Mm-hmm. But one, the Eva, the Eva order of events doesn't make sense. And then she never says she leaves the scene ever again. She always says that she's right there that whole entire time. So Katie just mentioning that she came from somewhere else was just a giant, giant, giant red flag for me. In, in what way? What, because, so I, I guess let me let me respond a little bit, and I'll ask you to expand on why it's a red flag. The the problem with some of the problem with KD is that, like I said, his account doesn't match Eva's, and it doesn't match youngsters. But I agree with you. I think when I covered that part of the statement or Jen's statement way back, you know, ten episodes ago, I mentioned similar to what you're saying that there that there are observations in there when we're doing like a statement analysis. Where KD says, you know, I looked over and I saw Jen. I think he says I saw her casually walking, you know, for down around the corner down from the sidewalk. You know, at, at that point, I felt like, okay, well, maybe this does kind of fit if uh, for, in one of two ways. You know, if Jen says she walks up and she only sees Eva. First of all, if KD and Youngster are saying she, she was there, if they were in cahoots and they were going to lie for, why wouldn't she say they were there? But if she says she walks up and she only sees Eva. In, in every version, whether it's her confession or her first statement, she's always just casually walking back before she either runs into Ernest and Tim or she sees Eva at the stairs. She's just casually walking around the corner. And then KD says, I see her casually walking around the corner. I had theorized, I think, in that episode, you know, again, 10 episodes ago, that maybe, you know, if he was just right, you know, it, where that closet kind of blocks part of the stairs, if he was right there and Jen saw Eva, and maybe Katie was standing there, and she just didn't notice him because he was, you know, partially blocked by that by that uh, that closet. Maybe that was him seeing her. Or now I lean more towards that him and Katie, that him and youngster were watching a lot of this occur through the sliding glass window or the bedroom window uh, where they were at. Uh, and, and some of the reason I think that is because youngster seems to describe what happened with the, the Red Rock interaction in his statement, but we know that he wasn't outside when that happened. So that's kind of where I theorize, but, but you said that, that him saying that kind of threw up a red flag for you. So I'm interested in, in having you expand on that. The major red flag, when, when it was a red flag for me, when you really look at her first witness statement, it also has a couple other red flags in there. But when she says she encounters Eva, they realize that somebody's in there talking and then Eva runs off to go get help. The Red Rock interaction happens after that in her statement. Mm-hmm. But then there's even a little bit more of a red flag because she even starts to say that she started interacting with the voice inside of the apartment for several minutes before people were coming back. Right. So she puts her whole entire self right there. And uh, my red flag really was a, a big, big one was if she was, if KD really was coming down the steps with Eva, first of all, that's a, that out of, that it's so out of order of events. But then she never says she leaves that general area. She says she's right in front of the door until help arrives. Mm-hmm. So it just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't match up from KD's observation. But like you said, there is that possibility that they really were getting a bird's eye view of this whole entire scene between being right in front of the door 
I need to know why she was right in front of the door at 930 because she puts herself there. It's almost like I, I know, I know I'm using 930 as a placeholder here because I'm going off of the idea. And I like where your theory was that it must have meant that Eva ran for help at 935. I know that we don't have a firm placeholder, but it seems like everybody can be, even Jen puts herself there. I really need to know why she put herself there and what she was doing there. And listen, could it be a chance that it's just one of those complete unlucky things? She happened to be right in front of a door from somebody getting murdered within five minutes. It is. But I have a really tough time. I would really like a good explanation as to what she was doing there. You know, honestly, that is, if I get a chance to actually interview her about the element of the actual case, the details of the case, that's my number one question. I think I said that in last week's follow-up is it bothers me why she's at the door. That being said, I think that there's, like, like you mentioned, in her first statement, she hasn't been influenced by the cops yet. Right. But it's, it, it, this is a weird case, right? Because you, you, you have to use these like hypotheticals. So because of there's so many unknowns. So it's, so if in this hypothetical, if Eva did tell her to lie and say that she heard the voice, but she actually didn't, then that would explain why she's saying she's interacting with the voice, right? Because Eva told her to say that. But if she didn't, if, if Eva didn't tell her to lie, then certainly that would be demonstrating some guilty knowledge. But, you know, in, in my analysis of her first statement, you see, you know, and, and I've mentioned before, sometimes in, in some people will, will, will look like, oh, you're just cherry picking what you like and what you don't like. But there's a process. And I, I think I was explaining to you in one of our Facebook posts about that process going through the statement analysis. And I'm, you're, you're look, I'm looking at things like especially physical movements and things where there's no utility. You know, there, there's no re- if someone's making up a story to try to make themselves look innocent, what's the utility in it? And like, and one thing that I noted in that first statement, she says she comes around the corner, she sees Eva yelling, and then she kind of says Eva's running away. But then she says that well, she talked to Eva, and she told Eva to call nine one one. But like that, there was confusion. It's like she couldn't tell that story forward and backwards. I don't think that she interacted with Eva in any in any of these scenarios. But then she says she's standing at the foot of the steps. And Eva runs off, and then she says, I ran to Catalina's door. She doesn't say Catalina, but I ran to the door. And then it's like, well, why, why are you running to a door that's two steps away from you? Right. So to me, it's like, well, maybe the running part is, is some truth leaking out that, you know, when she's trying to lie, but the truth is leaking out and her saying, I ran to the door. So what if she's walking around, you know, it, this is just a hypothetical explanation for why she could have been at the door. She sees Eva yelling, sees Eva go, oh, my God, and run off. And so she's still you know, halfway down the sidewalk, and she runs to the door to see what's going on, and she's knocking on it. But the big, the big monkey wrench gets thrown in, into the whole thing with June Sage, if you want to talk about her identification and, her, and what she saw for a minute. So I kind of was trying to follow along, and I, and I was with you, especially in this week's episode, Shirt thing, I was trying to follow along with that, and I can understand a lot of confusion with that, and I can also see where you could probably go either way with still thinking that she definitely saw Jennifer or not. Mm-hmm. I have a, I've always had a tough time going another way than that being the case because if it's not, if she didn't see Jennifer, even though Jennifer put herself in front of the door, 
we're talking in in the span of a couple of just a couple of minutes, and yes, there is a possibility that it could happen that another group of people with a girl have to go right up to that door right before the murder. Something really hard for me to wrap my head around, and it the way I've always kind of theorized it, I've been always looking to try to figure out why she was at that front door. And there are sometimes in in crimes like this and just crimes in general that things just don't really make sense. And if you're a normal person that doesn't break the law or get involved in a situation like this, you'll never understand. Mm -hmm. So I had a theory that, and I'll get into that in one second. I just want to use a personal story to kind of reference why I think like something outlandish could happen. I had a very close person to the family when he was 15 years old. He got caught up in something where he called one of his friends and asked him if he was home. And his friend said, I'm home right now, but I'm going out with my mom to the mall. In about 15 minutes, I have to go pick something up for something. And he's like, oh, you don't want to come hang out? And he's like, no, I can't. I'm going to the mall. 15 minutes later, says, hey, uh, you sure you don't want to hang out? He's like, no, I'm already in the car with my mom going to the mall. Well, this person that was close to the family goes and breaks into that house with a friend, steals about $3,000 worth of stuff, and gets pinched pretty easily because he was interacting with the person that he just robbed mm-hmm. right before it happened. So there's not always... Sometimes I always look at things like that where I'm like, that never should have happened, ever, but like it actually really did. And I've always been trying to figure out what happened at that door And me and you talked about the theory that I kind of had where I almost wonder if that knock on June's door really did truly happen because if they're about to do anything, even if it was meant to rough her up and and try to get her to stay quiet or whatever maybe the initial thought was for going into that house, uh, the apartment, sorry, I wonder if if Jen didn't knock on that door just to find out if the neighbor was home. Because if you're going to want, if you're going to do something like this, you're going to want to know that nobody's directly home next to you because you know you're going to make a lot of sound doing it. And that's kind of been like how I've been trying this. Other than that, I really can't figure out a reason why she would, if it really truly was a knock on the door, I can't think of another reason why you would knock. Now, again, that's going down the road of if she actually was involved in this, but that's, that was my connection to why that knock would happen. And then right after it, when nobody answers that door, all of a sudden you think that you have the green light because you would think that an elderly lady, if she was home, would at least say something through the door. So it almost gave you a green light to be like, she's not home, we're good to go. And that's why just a couple minutes later, you have a bang, you have a scream. Right. And then everything unfolds from there. And honestly, I don't, I don't disagree that that's possible. I, I, personally, at this point, I don't think that it was Jennifer that was doing the knocking. Uh, but I, I, I want to back up to something you said. You'd said it online too, but you're, you kind of have the, like this, this core issue with it is, right? Like if Jen says she was at the door and then it wasn't her that June saw, then that means there's another group of people besides Jen Red Rockenhouse in there in the really close time frame, right? Within a few minutes of each other. And, and kind of my response to that is if we can't, believe that there was another group of people there, then we then, then we can never even consider the possibility that Jen's innocent, right? Because if in whatever version of this, Jen is, is actually innocent, that means 
that there had to be another group of people there before Jen got there. So, so, so I don't see that as a hurdle for me. Okay. After we had that interaction online, I've, it, yes, if she actually doesn't, and that's why I keep going back to it, it is completely plausible. You know, however unlikely I think it is, that doesn't mean that there isn't a chance that it was just completely unlucky. She was at that door at that moment. And then, yeah, three minutes later, another group came in and all of this happened the way that it did. There's a couple of reasons why I, I keep going back to then like going forward now. So, all right. So let's say that another group did come. There's two other things that always keep bringing me back to this group of people that we keep looking at. The fact that the wallet is in the apartment is also something that I think, yes, there could be a possibility that they went in while everybody else was in there and could have been taken. But it always seems like an anchor point that somebody in that apartment at least was willing to take a dead woman's wallet, whether that's before or after the murder had occurred. And the other thing always goes back to the handprint. So yes, if, if I, I, I'm with you and, and I, and I want to, that's why I like talking to you about these things because I like trying to see both sides and then try to piece things together. Mm -hmm. So if I do say, fine, I'm with you. There, let's go with the next. I always want to just eliminate the things that we actually know then. Right. So if we were to keep going and we say, okay, there is another group, the handprint issue, and then the wallet is an issue. Jen's handprint on the glass you're talking about? Yes. Okay. So, and, and that's why I'm just like, that we can get to the point of if there's another group, then we just have to explain the next two things. And I could really be fully on board because there's these little, there's only these little nuggets of stuff that we have. But to me, and, and that's why I like bouncing these ideas off of you. To me, the breadcrumbs keep leading back to somebody from that apartment. I agree with that. And every single, and I like working through all these, these hypotheticals because yeah, like June did get some things wrong about what she saw through that peephole. But if we want to say, okay, let's go down the rabbit hole of it wasn't her and there's another group, then we just have to work work on those two things. And I think we get further along. But now there's still two big hurdles to get, even if it is a different group. Right. Well, I think um, the handprint for me, and I, I've, I mean, I've said this quite a bit, and I know a lot of people disagree with that, but the handprint doesn't bother me. I mean, we have, in every version of, G of Jennifer's statement, she says that she was on that patio at some point, whether she was confessing to the murder or she was saying that she went in to check and see what's going on. Personally, I think she's probably just being nosy. For example, she says in her statement that she knows that Keith Truesdale was looking for a phone. Well, and, and this is in, in Keith's statement, they've already shooed Jennifer out of the apartment. Like she came in, they shoot her out, and then him and Pam start talking and they say, oh, we got to find a phone. So he's, he's, he's in there looking for a phone, but Jennifer knows that they're looking for a phone. So Maybe that's when, you know, and, and like Pam can say, well, she was never on the patio. I never saw her on the patio, but, but Pam's at the front door. She, she literally can't see the patio from there. If you look at the crime right. scene photos, the blinds are pulled all the way up to, you know, within uh, two feet of the door being open. So, you know, if she was standing on the patio with her hand on that glass kind of peeking in, Keith couldn't see her and she knows Keith's looking for a phone. I think that there's, I just think there's, there's, 
there's at least a legitimate possibility that she was just jumping. She jumped over that fence and was was looking to see what was going on inside. So the handprint doesn't doesn't bother me all that much. The the big hurdle for me is and and to me I, I don't even see the wall as a hurdle in my mind. Like it, it that the number of coincidences that we would have to have for this for this murder to have been committed by someone other than someone in that apartment is just too much for me to get over. It's astronomical the amount of coincidences that have to happen, and, and coincidences can happen, but mm-hmm. it's the law. Of, it's almost like how many coincidences do we have to swallow before we just have to say we're pretty much on the right track here? Exactly what was just we need the last couple puzzle pieces to know exactly what happened. Yeah, and it just, it just doesn't work with the wall. I mean, the the fact that I mean you've got all these changing stories. Uh, in my opinion, they're lying about this voice. You got. I mean, Jennifer ultimately confessing to the thing. You've got all the different witnesses that they were there. And for all that to just be a coincidence, and really all they did was walk in and take a wallet, you can't say it's impossible, but it's just that's so far down on the possible scenarios for me. I think that I think that it definitely, and I guess I should ask you this before we, we kind of move into this next part is, what are your your thoughts on Eva being involved? Do you do you have a feeling one way or the other if you think that she was involved in this? Even if even if it is Jennifer, could it have been like Jennifer and Eva, or do you think Eva wasn't involved? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can I give you my theory based off of, and I, I, I really do try to keep these theories based as much in evidence through either the, the little physical evidence we have or the witness statement as a whole. Yeah. And I really, I, don't, I really try not to fill in too many blanks, and I try to keep everything in my head plausible, but I also know that like I'm just trying to piece these things together, so I don't really always have a good grasp on sometimes if I'm overthinking something. My thought is, Everything that morning happened as Jen said. She did get up. She got up. She made those phone calls. They came back. And I don't, I, I, I have no idea on like true motive, but I think that little pieces of truth are in there that she met Eva at the bottom of those stairs and she did go in there. And I honestly think Eva and Jen did this just the two of them. And that's it. And I think that she went to go knock on June's door to see if she was home Mm -hmm. didn't get an answer because June even says she was scared. So she made no sound, but kind of watched for a minute. Right. At that time, I honestly, my, my theory is that Eva hops that fence 
and is ready to go in there. But Jen's going to use it as a distraction when Red Rock and Housen come up. When they come up, it catches Jen completely off guard because she knows Eva just went over that fence. Mm-hmm. So when Housen says, hey, is she up there? She's like, no, she's not up there. You know, go away. Now, Jen, in Jen's statement, she's saying that Eva has already run to the office, which I'm pretty sure they would have crossed paths with Eva if she was running to the office from the direction that Red Rock and Housen were coming from. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong about that because I don't have a firm grasp of the layout. She shooed them away, and and the reason why I think this next part, and there's a little bit of conjecture on my part, I think that once she shoots them away, she knocks on Catalina's door. And the reason why I say that, if it's just the two of them, what better way than to blitz attack this person if you can get her off her guard going to answer a knock at the door and be attacked from behind? And there's a reason why she's actually found next to the front door, because I think she turned around just enough because of the sound of Eva coming in and gets attacked and gets killed right there. And for me, it almost does explain why, one, Jen doesn't have any guilty knowledge of the crime because she was on the other side of that door. And I think she really thought that it wasn't going to be this lead to murder. I think something along the line that they just wanted to rough her up or scare her, or at least that's what was told to Jennifer. And the reason why she did hop that fence and why her handprint is there is because she wanted to see what happened. Okay. So, so first question I have is, is in that scenario, where is Eva when Red Rock and Housen show up? I think she's crouched down on the other side of the fence. Okay, so, so that's why they didn't see her, because she's crouched down over there? Yep, she's crouched down on the other side of the fence, and that's why she's trying to shoo her away as fast as humanly possible, because this is supposed to be a split-second thing. And I don't, I, like, like we've even said uh, throughout the, se- uh, the season, that all of this probably happens in the blink of an eye. Right, yeah, in, in probably a minute, two minutes tops, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the issues I have with that, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it, that does, like, put pieces of the puzzle together, right? It, we can, with what we know and kind of assumptions from what we have in the record, that fits. I have some issues with it behaviorally. Well, number one is, if the plan was to rough just just rough Catalina up and scare her. I don't think Eva does that herself. You know, I I, I don't th- you know, because if that's the plan, she's going to go down and beat her up and she's obviously going to be easily identified and you know, she's not the mafia. You know, what does she think's going to happen? She's probably going to call the police and they're going to arrest her, you know, when she's sitting there beat up and she says that's the person to beat me up. Personally, I think that Eva was involved probably more in the capacity to, as to what, what like Jennifer confessed to. But I think someone else is the one that actually attacked and, or at least someone who's actually like stabbed and killed Catalina. But my other issue with that scenario is if that's the extent of Jennifer's involvement is that she's knocking on the door and that's all she did. She was never even inside when this happens and she knows that Eva did it. It's not even just why does she never, ever – there's a bunch of things. One, why does Eva point the finger at your accomplice? I mean, you just don't see that. You don't point the finger at your accomplice because that's just drawing more attention to yourself. Two, why doesn't Jennifer say, well, it was Eva then or now? And I can tell you, I can tell you now – one thing I do know from talking to her attorney is that she's not saying that now either. 
what what he told me was she's kind of useless because she doesn't the way he believes she doesn't actually know what happened. So she's not able to help him. Okay. That's his view on it from what he's telling her. So she's still not throwing it. And then, you know, there's, you know, we've had this conversation on the follows before, you know, there's the, well, yeah, but there's the code of the street. She doesn't snitch, but you can't use that argument either because she did snitch. Right. I mean, she already, she told detective Allen that it was Eva and Frank that did it. Right. So she tried to snitch on Eva, but you know, she did, he didn't accept that. So, you know, it's, it's the fact that Jennifer never says it was Eva. Eva directs the police right at her accomplice in that scenario. And the fact that, you know, I think if the idea was for Eva alone to go rough this girl, rough this woman up that, you know, she doesn't do it by herself because she's just, all she's doing is asking to go to prison at that point. That's why I think, you know, our, we have, we have such, we have such uh, productive discussions because I, you're looking at a lot of the puzzle pieces and the evidence. And I really like to, to add a lot of behavioral analysis into the, into the scenario. But, but those are my thoughts. What do you, what do you think about that as far as how that works with your scenario? Uh, it, it, there's parts of this whole entire thing that I've never quite been able to, to rationalize. And it's a lot of the post stuff that you're hundred percent right. Like I know that I think Jennifer thought they both, if let's just, in my scenario, I think Jennifer, the only thing she would have thought of, at least initially, is the fact that they were going to protect each other. But I also do have a hard time of even all these years later, if, if it happened, not rolling on Eva and just being like, she was involved too. Uh, it, the only way, the only thing, and the only thing I've ever thought, the reason why she, she hasn't said anything else or who else it could have been if she was involved, if she did way more than I think she did. Mm-hmm. I'm able to do anything for her. That's the only thing I've ever been able to think of, and it's been a big hang-up of mine because in my head, this all makes sense, but there are those post-conviction, and even as like during the trials happening, there's a lot of stuff that make me say and give me pause to basically everything that you've mentioned, and it's made it hard to... And that's why I I think I lean here, but I think that, that that's about as close as I can get with the evidence that we have to work with. Yeah, and then, and I think that's a that, that's a good approach. You know, I I have a scenario in my mind about what I think happened, or or, or a scenario that I think fits with everything. But the big hang up there is June Sage's statement and how everything works with that. And with that. Let's go ahead and, and end for, for this episode. Uh, for, for all of you all of you listening, I'm leaving for Houston next week, um, so we've got to get two episodes ahead. So we're going to go ahead and end this right here. But, but Chris and I will continue our conversation in next week's episode. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. 
And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. And Mike can be found at MurbGaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.